0: You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Today we continue in our Advent sermon series, which we are calling Witnesses to the Miracle. Each Sunday throughout the season of Advent, up until Christmas Eve, we will visit with one of the characters of the birth story of Jesus that is perhaps a character that might otherwise be overlooked or passed by. We began last week with Zechariah, and this week we visit his wife, Elizabeth. A brief background leading into our verses about Elizabeth from Luke's first chapter. Up until this point where we will begin, the angel Gabriel has made two different uh, visits. He has visited Mary and announced to her that she will bear a child who will be the son of God. And Gabriel has also visited Zechariah, our reading from last Sunday, and announced that he and Elizabeth... They too will bear a child, a child who will not be the son of God, but rather point the way to the Lord. Up until this point in the narrative, though, those two encounters have been kept completely separate. Mary does not know of the encounter that Elizabeth has, though she knows she is expecting. And Elizabeth does not know who it is that Mary carries. And it is here at this point in the story where those two narratives come together. So let us continue listening now for a word from God as we hear these verses from Luke chapter 1. After those days, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time, when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace that I have endured among my people. And why has this happened to me, she asks, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb had leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit now that something might leap within us, that something might stir deep in our hearts, that we, O God, may be formed more closely in your image and sent to follow more closely in the way that you lead Indeed, O oh God, we pray that through your spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Imagine for a moment being in that room. Mary, sweaty, dusty, tired from the journey. Elizabeth, likely less sweaty, less dusty, but equally as tired as far along in her pregnancy as she is. Both of the two women, of course, must have felt exhausted. Exhausted by the shared experience they found themselves in. Right, two women who have had Experiences that have left them pregnant under what we might call unusual circumstances. For weeks, I think it's fair for us to presume both Mary and Elizabeth have endured sideways glances, hushed conversations, worried expressions on their friends' faces that read something like, now, who do you say the father is? And wait, you and Zechariah, but... I mean, we find two women in this room who must have been exhausted. And yet what's amazing to me is in this scene, there is an almost palpable energy, right? I mean, this narrative, it, it pulses with energy. It tells us that Mary didn't just go to Elizabeth, she made haste to get to her. Right, It tells us that Elizabeth doesn't just speak to her cousin. She exclaims in a loud voice. But the part that really gets me is the leaping. Did you hear that part? When Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, it says the child, John, leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, she exclaims to Mary, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she asked this great question. Why has this happened to me? That the mother of my Lord has come to me. Remember what I said earlier, right? Up until this point in the story, the two encounters with the angel, they have been completely separate, independent of one another. The angel has come to Mary and explained that she will bear the son of God. The angel has come to Zechariah and Elizabeth and explained that they will have the one who will point the way to the Lord. But there's no mention to Elizabeth or Zechariah at any point in the lead up to these verses that the Messiah, whom surely as good Jewish adherents they were expecting, but still there was no indication that the Messiah's arrival was imminent. And there was definitely no expectation that Elizabeth's young cousin was the one who was carrying the Lord himself. How then does Elizabeth know? How does she know that Mary carries the Lord himself? Luke tells us that it is the leaping. The child leaps in Elizabeth's womb. It's almost as if John from within points to his cousin just across the way and says, "Here is the one." Mary, you see, Mary brings into the world the Christ child, but Elizabeth, the second witness to the miracle. Elizabeth brings into the world the one who points to the Christ. One of the great Christian masterpieces of the Renaissance era is a piece that is known as the Eisenheim Altarpiece. It was painted by Matthias Grunewald. It took him four years. Can you see it? Four years to paint this huge altarpiece. It was for a monastery in Eisenheim, France, right on the border of, with Germany. It's in a museum now. What's amazing about this piece, though, is the detail when you zoom in just a little bit and you can see that central section of the altarpiece up close. You see on the left, robed in white, Mary, her hands folded in praise, falling into the arms of St. John. In the center, you see Jesus. And then On the right, dressed in red, who do you think that is? It's John the Baptist. And do you see what he's doing? He's pointing. And do you see who he's pointing at? Jesus. The great 20th century Reformation scholar and theologian Karl Barth he had a replica of this painting that hung over his desk in his study in Basel, Switzerland. And in his church dogmatics, he writes about this painting by Grunwald, And he describes Jesus there on the cross as a wretched, crucified, dead man. And yet, it is to that wretched, crucified, dead man that John points as if to say, in this one rest the salvation and the hope of all the world. I think it's impossible to see from where you're seated, but right in John the Baptist's hand is a scroll, and it is translated, the words there, as saying, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it seems to me that John the Baptist probably would have been who he became, regardless of who his parents were. After all, God created and formed and ordained John for a very specific purpose, to make straight the way to point others to Jesus. But you know, it seems to me that John may not have been fully able to assume that posture that is depicted there in that altarpiece had Elizabeth not been his mother, had Elizabeth not modeled for him what it looks like to decrease herself in order that God might be increased. Go back to that room with me. Elizabeth is the one with all the power here. Elizabeth is descended, or Elizabeth is married, rather, to one who is descended from a line of priests. She is married to a priest in Jerusalem, no less. This is a family with power. And her son, John, he will inherit that pedigree. He will be born from a family of priests. This is all code language in the ancient world for saying, here are important people. They may not be the most powerful people, but neither are they peasants, right? It would have been so natural for Elizabeth in this scene today to feel jealousy at her younger cousin, Mary. Her younger cousin Mary, who is soon going to take on the greatest role any woman has ever had in all of time and space. It would have been so natural for Elizabeth to want more for her only son. But what does she do here instead? She decreases herself in order to increase God's glory. Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth here models for John what his life calling will become. She points to one who is greater than she. That sounds easy, doesn't it? At the surface, at least. For all of us to go out and say, okay, got it. Our call is to point others to Jesus, to be kind, to practice generosity, to show forgiveness. But in practice, it's difficult, right? I have a friend who pastors a church in North Carolina and his youth group went to a Retreat this past summer at a conference center in Virginia. And at the end of their week, they did what a lot of conferences with youth will do on the final night after that last big worship service. The youth file out of the sanctuary and they circle up and they have candles that they're gonna light. If you've ever been to a youth conference at Montreat, it's an incredible experience to experience that around Lake Susan. The only problem this summer was this youth group, they filed out into what might have been the windiest night of their lives. One of the youth advisors who was on the trip had coffee with my friend a few weeks later. And he said, You know, it was uh, incredibly difficult to keep your candle lit in that beautiful, meant to be beautiful worship experience. And he said, at first it was pretty frustrating because every time you uh, got your flame lit, it would go out. And it was frustrating because you would look around and you would see just these flames popping up and then going away and then momentarily flicking back until going back. But he said, at some point I realized that this is in fact the perfect image for the church, right? This is what it looks like to be the church he was telling my friend you know every christmas eve we gather in our sanctuary and we have one of these candlelight services just like we will in a few weeks and we all stand there and we get our candles lit with the light of christ and it's supposed to show us how christ's love it spreads through us to the ends of the earth but in reality it's so much messier In reality, there are these winds that blow in when we least want them to blow in. They blow in with things like our ego. They blow in with things like our pride. They blow in with our prejudices and our allegiances and all of those other gods who we are tempted to worship money and attention and all the rest. These winds, his friend explained to him, they blow in and they blow our lights out. But our call as the church is to keep passing that light, to keep passing on the love of Christ to each other, to keep relighting those candles again and again and again. Our first witness last week, Zechariah who I also like to imagine was in the room with Elizabeth and Mary just over in the corner quietly marveling at it all. If you were in church last Sunday, you would get that. If you weren't, go back and you can listen. (laughs) I like to think, though, that our first witness, our first witness invites us to just marvel at God's light and God's love at work in the world. But our second witness, Elizabeth. Well, Elizabeth invites us to point others to what we're marveling at. To lean over when we notice that our neighbor's candle is extinguished and to offer our own and to be willing when our own candles go out to receive that light and that love from the one who is beside us. Elizabeth invites us, in other words, to point the way, to point the way to the light and to the love that shines even in the darkness, even on the windiest seasons and days of our lives, to point to that light and that love that shines in the darkness, that light that has not, shall not, and will not ever be extinguished. Friends, the call of Christ and the reminder of Elizabeth and the example of John is to point that others might know that light and that love as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.